Mark Stein Show. Now, here's Andrew Lawton, in for Mark. Hello and welcome along. If you've had the misfortune of following Canadian politics over the last few months, you will no doubt be aware that Justin Trudeau's liberals are trying to overhaul the internet and regulate who can post to YouTube and Facebook and all of that. And they say the reason for this is to mandate more Canadian content. So this episode, we are ensuring is fully Trudeau compliant. Not exactly all Canadian content, but you've got a Canadian guest host that is in Canada to satisfy all of these requirements that we know are coming down the pipeline any day now. My thanks to you all on this Wednesday, June 23rd. 2021. For people in Ontario like myself, we are into 15 months of two weeks to flatten the curve. Still locked down. So hey, what else is there to do but guest host the Mark Stein Show? It's my pleasure to be here. I will say on the note of Canadian politics, it's not going to be all Canadian content today, but I do want to start off with this because in this morning's National Post, liberals to introduce new hate speech bill, possibly bringing back controversial section 13. If you've been a longtime reader of Stein Online, you will no doubt be familiar with Section 13. This was the section of the Canadian Human Rights Act that allowed the government to go after bloggers and anyone posting anything online they did not approve of under the auspices of curbing so-called hate speech. And this wasn't just about going after people that were making death threats online, threatening genocide, things that are already and have always been illegal in Canada. It was going after bloggers whose only sin, whose only crime, if you can call it that, was sharing an unpopular opinion. It was Section 13 that people tried to use to censor Mark Stein, Ezra Levant, and numerous other Canadians, including the late dear Kathy Shadle. And it was repealed back in 2013, back when Canada's Conservative Party had the intestinal fortitude to take up such big free speech battles. And now the bill is coming back with a vengeance. I've been following this for the last couple of years as the Liberals have tried to move this through. They had in 2019 hearings on this, weeks and weeks of hearings on what to do about online hate speech on Parliament Hill. One of the witnesses who testified was none other than Mark, who had this to say. I was here last time round, 10 years ago, when we got rid of Section 13, because it was corrupt uh, in absolutely every aspect of its operation, uh, from minor bureaucrats uh, indulging strange James Bond fantasies and playing undercover dress-up Nazis on the internet, to pathetic rubber-stamp jurists who gave Section 13 a 100% conviction rate uh, that uh, even respectable chaps like Kim Jong-un and Saddam Hussein would have thought was perfectly ridiculous. The worst aspect of it was secret trials. Secret trials in Ottawa. Not in Tehran or Pyongyang, but in Ottawa. I discovered it one evening before dinner, and I emailed my friends at McLean's and um, the eminent barrister Julian Porter, whom I see uh, the Prime Minister recently retained as his QC. That's how respectable he is. And Julian, in a couple of hours, wrote a motion 
referencing uh, Viscount Haldane and Ambard versus Attorney General of Trinidad and Tobago, real law, not the pseudo law of Section 13, and did what John did. He, uh, Julian's motion, opened up that dank, uh, fetid dungeon of pseudo justice to the public, to the people of Canada. And after 20 minutes in the cleansing sunlight that John talked about, uh, the unimpressive jurist in that case, Athan Athanios Hadges, uh, decided that Section 13 was unconstitutional and he wasn't going to have anything more to do with it. Sunshine works. The idea of bureaucrats once again getting into this business uh, is, is deeply disturbing. They didn't have enough work last time. They had to actually, uh, shortly before the McLean's case, which was the one I was involved in, uh, the senior counsel of the Canadian Human Rights Commission actually went to Toronto to speak to various groups to say they weren't getting enough cases and that's why uh, people should file more complaints. Ultimately, free speech is hate speech, and hate speech is free speech. It's for the speech you hate, the speech you revile. The alternative to free speech is approved speech, and that necessarily means approved by whom? Well, approved uh, by yourself as a citizen, if you don't want to have Lindsay Shepherd over to dinner, as Bernie Farber doesn't, that's fair enough. But once it becomes speech approved by the state and speech uh, approved by formal bodies, it effectively means the speech approved by the powerful. It was clear that with the exception of a couple of the conservatives on the committee who had extended the invitation to Mark alongside John Robson and Lindsay Shepard, that no one had any interest in standing up for free speech. They were all interested solely in how they could, in their view, lawfully limit free speech. One member of parliament, a socialist, a New Democrat by the name of Randall Garrison, used his entire seven minutes of questioning Mark and Lindsay and John to not ask a single question. He filibustered, which had seeped its way into Canadian politics, evidently, on that June day in 2019. And at the end of it, the Liberals were not persuaded. They want to bring back a version of this bill that will necessarily and inevitably limit online speech. But what's different now than in 2013 is the ubiquity of big tech platforms like Facebook and Twitter and Google. And rather than try to rein in these platforms, like you get some Republicans talking about in the United States, the liberal government's approach is to deputize them, to ensure that they become the enforcers of speech, to fine them if they do not take down offending content from their platforms within 24 hours or whatever it is. So now, instead of censorship at the hands of big tech platforms, you have censorship at the hands of big tech platforms who are functioning as state enforcers. And this means you lose out on the one silver lining of government censorship in a liberal democracy, or what's supposed to be a liberal democracy anyway, which is the ability to appeal and review actions taken by government. And a lot of these companies, you know, have no interest in dealing with pesky bureaucrats in Canada. So if they are deciding to be compliant, they will take the broadest possible view, or at the very least, use government policy. Use policies like that of the Canadian Liberals to justify taking your content 
offline, something we already see happening in a widespread manner by anyone who expresses a conservative viewpoint on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. Uh, my show, actually, that I do, The Andrew Lawton Show, has been taken off YouTube for one week, suspended because I interviewed the My Pillow guy earlier this year, Mike Lindell. And apparently YouTube has been so hell-bent on canceling Mike Lindell that now they are canceling, albeit temporarily, for now anyway, anyone who dares to speak to Mike Lindell. My friend Bruce Party, who is a law professor at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, has said very notably that anything illegal in Canadian society off the internet is illegal on the internet which means hate speech, which in a Canadian legal context has a very high threshold, threatening genocide or threatening violence, essentially, is already illegal online and offline. So anything that the government does to limit speech even further inevitably is lowering that threshold. Now, Stephen Gilbo, who is the Minister of Canadian Heritage, has previously said in a newspaper interview that he wants the government's hate speech definition to be in alignment with a Supreme Court decision from years ago called the Watcott decision. Now, I know I was already on thin ice as a guest host, and now I'm quoting Canadian Supreme Court decisions, but there is a significant point to this, I promise you. This was a decision that upheld truth is no defense for free speech in some circumstances. When it comes to hate speech, the court determined that truth may be used for wildly disparate ends, unquote. And further maintained that if there is no ban on hate speech, that will be, in the words of the esteemed justices, quote, more rather than less damaging to freedom of expression. Now, this decision was issued when Canada had a conservative government, so there was no government eager to put this into motion. But what the Supreme Court said then and what the Liberals seem to agree with is that somehow restricting free speech is the only way to save free speech. And if you can understand what that means, you may be, in fact, I think you are, qualified to be Canada's next Prime Minister. This is Mark Stein inviting you to this week's Stein Song of the Week on Serenade Radio. Sometimes a song winds up a million miles away from what the guys who wrote it had in mind. This one is taken to be a big, soulful American rhythm and blues power ballad, whereas in reality, it was written by a couple of English blokes whose first hit was the quintessential British pub sing-along. We'll tell its story on Stein's Song of the Week, Sunday afternoon at 5.30. There are a number of ways that a foreign adversary can seek to influence a person. Do you agree with that? Yes. Financial? Yes, that can be one. Uh, romance, you said it's another. Yes. It's Eric Swalwell's Chinese Penetration of the Day. I know I said it wouldn't be all Canadian content this episode, but I would be remiss to not bring attention to a column that appeared in Canada's Globe and Mail this week by Paul Evans, who is a researcher in Asian research at the University of British Columbia, and Canadian Senator Yuen Pao Wu. 
Anti-Asian sentiment is becoming anti-Chinese prejudice in Canada. A couple of weeks back, you may remember I did a Canadian content segment on this very show about an accusation from Justin Trudeau that anyone who criticized China was essentially fomenting racism and bigotry against Chinese people, when criticism of the Chinese regime is not at all the same as criticism of Chinese people. But now these two members of the Canadian elite are concerned that they and their colleagues are accused of being, quote, pro-Beijing, unquote, and thus disloyal to Canada, saying that this is just a throwback to the 1950s McCarthy era. In some respects, they're taking aim at a policy from the Alberta government a couple of weeks ago to freeze new and renewed university partnerships with institutions tied to the Chinese government. But they're saying that this action will destroy all the bridges that Canadian universities have been building with China. And to me, that strikes me as a feature and not a bug of this. It is these bridges, they say, that have been so problematic, to use the language of the left, when it comes to Canada's relationships with China, because traffic only goes one way on these bridges. And this is now happening in the renewed attention to the lab leak theory, dismissed as a conspiracy by so many of the institutions and researchers and so-called experts who are now coming around to, well, maybe, just maybe we should look into it. But I don't think it's because they want to. It's because now the facts are widespread enough that they have to. And China is very smart about these things. There was a study in the U.S. NIH last week showing that seven people in five U.S. states were infected with COVID-19 just a couple of weeks before the U.S. reported its first official cases. And without skipping a beat, a Chinese epidemiologist said, well, the United States should now be the priority in probing the origins of COVID-19. That was a quote from Zhang Guang, chief epidemiologist with the Chinese Center for Disease Control and Promotion. I Sorry, no, no, no. Disease Control and Prevention. No, Promotion's a different department. They're down the street. He doesn't work there. And now, this one is great. The Chinese Foreign Ministry is calling for the Wuhan Institute of Virology to be given a Nobel Prize. A spokesman for the foreign ministry says at a press conference the genome sequence of COVID-19 was first identified by Chinese scientists, but that does not mean Wuhan is the source of the coronavirus, nor can it be inferred that the coronavirus was made by Chinese scientists. He said the team in Wuhan should be awarded the Nobel Prize in medicine for their research on COVID-19 instead of being criticized. And the reason I share that is in part to mock it, but also because I want to state on the record that I would not be surprised if that ended up happening. Perhaps the Chinese penetration segment in a few weeks' time will be about how the Wuhan Institute of Virology are joining the legions of Nobel laureates like, uh, well, not like Michael Mann, but, you know, like actual Nobel laureates. Would not put it past them. And let's go over to Mark for some breaking news. Keep up to date with the past on the 100 Years Ago Show with Mark Stein. A clash of female titans, nothing in Ireland makes census, and all live and die. It's June 1921. A hundred years from today. You're welcome. 
World News Update following their representation and recognition at the 1919-1920 Paris Peace Conference. Prime Ministers of the British Dominions are meeting in London in the more conventional circumstances of an imperial conference. Prime Minister Lloyd George welcomed his colleagues Arthur Meehan of Canada, Billy Hughes of Australia, Bill Massey of New Zealand and General Smuts of South Africa. Uh, For the first time, India was invited, the senior native delegate being the Maharao of Kutch. The principal issue is relations with Japan and the United States, who seem destined for conflict. Australia and New Zealand argue the empire needs a friend in the Pacific, i.e. Japan. Canada is more concerned with its powerful southern neighbour. Aside from presiding over his overseas prime ministers, King George V has been getting to know his newest ministers closer to home in the brand new polity of Northern Ireland. In Belfast, he and the Queen were driven in an open barouche pulled by four grey horses through three miles of cheering subjects both Protestant and Catholic, as even Sinn Féin has conceded. He was there to open the new parliament at City Hall. I appeal to all Irishmen to pause, said His Majesty, to stretch out the hand of forbearance and conciliation, to forgive and to forget, and to join in making for the land which they love a new era of peace, contentment and goodwill. As to the likelihood of that, even as he was speaking, three Majesties straits were kidnapped in Dublin. mother of yours. In her eyes there's a view of Kalani, on her lips there's the Rose of Kildare. Yeah, but where is she officially domiciled for purposes of legal residence? Come to that? Is she still with us? It's hard to be sure. For the first time in the history of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, the decennial census will be only partial. England, Scotland, Wales are being enumerated, but not Ireland because of the increasing violence of the revolutionary uprising. Across the Atlantic, America's Bureau of the Census has announced the official enumeration by race of the United States. There are 94,822,431 whites, 10,463,13 Negroes, 242,959 Indians, 111,025 Japanese, 
and 61,686 Chinese. Also in the United States, the Mint has resumed the production of silver dollars. Minting of silver dollars ceased at the start of the war in 1914 and 279 million of the existing ones were sold to Great Britain in the course of that war. 75 miles off the coast of Norfolk, Virginia, the Navy, with support from the Army, has given a tremendous display of American air power by dropping 12 bombs from a height of 1,100 feet on Kaiser Wilhelm's former U-boat or submarine. U-117 sank in just under 16 minutes and is the first of several former German vessels scheduled for similar public destruction by Washington. Congress has passed the Army Appropriation Bill, mandating the reduction of America's enlisted soldiery by more than a third, down from 220,000 men to 150,000 in the next three months. 70,000 doughboys are headed back to the farm. You're gonna keep them down on the farm After they leave Paris How you're gonna keep them away from Broadway Jazzing around and painting the town How you're gonna keep them away from harm That's a mystery They'll never want to see a rake or plow And who the deuce can party to a cow How you gonna keep them down on the farm After they've seen Paris There are some things you want to keep down on the farm after a dinner party at the home of Joseph Wentling in Greensburg, Pennsylvania, three women are dead. Miss Ella Woodward, a maid in service to Mr. Wentling, died first. Then Mr. Wentling's wife, despite the efforts of specialists from Pittsburgh and New York, Mrs. Covode Reed, one of the Wentling's dinner guests, succumbed two days later. All three deaths were from botulism traced to one small bottle of olives from a Pittsburgh farm. At its annual conference, the American Library Association has established something called the John Newbery Medal, named for the great 18th century English publisher of children's books, and to be awarded annually to, quote, the most distinguished contribution to American literature for children. Get up in the morning and I make the coffee roll. Ham and eggs turn over, put the crullers in a hole. Get upon a trolley car, the car begins to sway. Sit upon a half a dozen laps to stop a day. I walk into the office and I greet the daughter there. Six or seven elevators go up in the air. Sit down at my Remington and syncopate the keys. The fellow by the water stand gets water on the knees. The boss dictates a letter. Dear sir, I'd like to say the man who gets the letter has to stop and hesitate. And when the day is over and the sunset in the west, say I'm the only little bird who doesn't go to rest. For I'm a jazz vampire. Take a tip, take a tip, take a tip from me, for I am all the evil music has. I stood by the ocean. Around, shook my shoulders and the sun went down. For I'm the meanest kind of jazz vampire. 
1921, and there are all kinds of women around these days to startle the men folk, not just jazz vampires, but also female sportsmen. The first international multi-sports event for women has opened in Monte Carlo. The so-called Women's Olympiad was organised by the French lady athlete Alice Milia after the announcement by the International Olympic Committee that women would not participate in the next Olympics in 1924. So instead, Madame Milia invited 100 women from five nations to compete at the 800-metre run, the javelin, the shot put, and other such events in the garden of Monaco's casino. The chaps may find a jazz vampire less disturbing than a lady shot putter. In what remains of male sports news, the International Polo Cup will be returning to America. The United States has defeated the British team at Hurlingham 10-6. to it is only two years since Ramon Lopez Valade published what critics regard as his major work, Zozobra. Acclaimed as Mexico's national poet, Senor Valade is dead just a few days after his 33rd birthday. The official cause is pneumonia. The Boston Globe was founded in 1872 and within a year was facing financial ruin. A Civil War veteran, badly wounded at the Battle of Port Hudson, was brought in as business manager and publisher. Charles Taylor got a grip on the paper, quadrupled its circulation within three weeks and made it the leading daily newspaper in New England. General Taylor, as he was known to one and all, is dead at 74. And that's the way of the world, June 1921. A hundred years from today, a hundred years from today. And now, from the land where everything is policed except crime. Good evening, all. It's your Brit Wanker Copper of the Day. We are completely ripping up the format in today's show because I would actually like to spotlight a Brit non-wanker copper, and that is the new chief of the Manchester police, Stephen Watson, who told the Daily Telegraph he would kneel before the Queen, God, and Mrs. Watson, and that's it. In the face of an increasing push for police to join all of the woke virtue signaling of pretty much every other organization and political group around and take a knee to protest this injustice or that injustice. Chief Watson told the Daily Telegraph that the public were, quote, getting a little bit fed up of virtue signaling police officers and would rather we just locked up burglars. And this is especially true in Manchester. The previous chief stepped down in December after a report found that Manchester police were not recording about 80,000 crimes a year and were closing cases without properly investigating them. Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary said 220 crimes a day went unrecorded in 2020 up until June. 
This is about one in five of all crimes and one in four violent crimes. Now, I'm of the old-fashioned view that police should not be going after people's tweets or harassing people for enjoying their days in parks, as has been so common in the last year and some months. But it's all the more egregious that they were doing this in the absence of covering and addressing real crime, hence the introduction that Mark has coined for this very segment, the land where everything is policed except crime. But no more, says Chief Watson, because if you start joining the protesters by taking a knee, you surrender your impartiality. And he said he's also concerned with the continual innovation of new so-called hate crimes, which, in his words, seek to criminalize what people think about difficult social issues. And even holding unfortunate beliefs, as he calls them, like being a misogynist or a racist, is not illegal. Good for him. Justin Trudeau could learn a thing or two, as could most of his colleagues, most of his fellow police chiefs across Her Majesty's land and dominions. And that includes the Royal Canadian Mounted Police in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Afternoon, sir. Yes, yes. Park with the RCMP. Yeah. I can get you to step out of the vehicle. I'm going to place you under arrest right now. Yeah. Right now, you're under arrest under the uh, provincial health orders. Okay, so if you can just put your hands behind your back, face towards the vehicle. Okay, put, give me one hand here. I'll get you to see the vehicle, okay? Thank yep. you. The other hand. Do you have any weapons or anything on you, sir? Weapon? No, no weapon. Only, anything on you only that's my hurt words. Me or anything, anything like that? Sorry? Anything on you that's going to hurt me or anything like that? No, no, okay. anything will hurt you. Only my words, only my philosophy, only what I believe in. Okay. All right, come on over this way. I'll explain a few things to you here right away. That was quite an unbelievable clip of an arrest of a political leader in Canada, Maxime Bernier, who you may have seen a couple of weeks back on Tucker Carlson Tonight on Fox News, arrested in Manitoba, handcuffed, charged, taken to jail, all for the crime of gathering with some political supporters in the lead-up to an election campaign, which could be any moment in Canada. Maxime Bernier joins me now. And I should say, Maxime, you, this is not your first appearance on The Mark Stein Show. A few years back, you were a guest when you were seeking the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada. And amazingly, things have changed quite a bit. You are no longer in the Conservative Party of Canada. And Mark has been replaced by a second-stringer guest host like myself. But regardless, it's good to have you back on. It's good to talk to you. Thanks for being here. But it's good to be with you, Andrew. And yes, uh, I think we had a very nice conversation when I was running for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada. And actually, you know, I didn't win with 49% of the vote. But um, after that, I decided to uh, create uh, the People's Party of Canada. And um, it's going well. In, and like you just said in the beginning, I'm doing a tour across the country. I call that the Mad Max Freedom Tour. And I was in Manitoba and um, I discovered a tyrannical public health orders and also draconian and unjustified lockdowns over there. That was a little bit crazy. Yes, and I want to talk about your interview with, with Tucker, because this went uh, very, very widely disseminated. And I don't know if you watched the interview back afterwards, but the fa the look on Tucker's face was, I think, what a lot of Americans who have always had this very friendly, nice, convivial view of Canada as being the, these nice, friendly neighbors, as people learned how bad things are here. And, and I'm curious what the response has been that you've experienced from Americans. 
Yeah, we received a lot of emails uh, to the People's Party of Canada after that interview. Uh, people were shocked, uh, Americans and Canadians also. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I cannot believe that um, this kind of uh, behavior from a, from a provincial government is happening here in our country. Because before being there, as you may know, I received a letter from the head of the public uh, um, uh, uh, health department in Manitoba. And he said, you know, actually, you're not welcome. And if you're coming to Manitoba, you'll have to do a quarantine for 15 days. And my answer was in the public. And I said, you know, I won't surrender my constitutional rights. And I have a constitutional right to travel across the country. So I did it. And, um, and like I said to Tucker, my first event was with, with the executive of my writing association over there in a little town about an hour south of Winnipeg. And I'm used to have this kind of a meeting with my people um, outside in a public park because, as you know, the regulations and the rules for uh, uh, gathering are very strict all across the country. Uh, but I did not imagine that uh, after that meeting, I received a ticket and uh, they told me, uh, Maxime, uh, if you do another uh, meeting with your people, a political gathering, you, uh, you are taking a risk to be arrested. So just after that, <laughs> Andrew, I called my lawyer and I said, do, is it okay? Can I go? Do I have actually my constitutional rights? And he said, no, no, it's illegal, unconstitutional. You, you are at risk to be arrested, but we will win that case if you are arrested. And like you said in the beginning, I was arrested and cuffed and put in jail like a criminal for a non-crime just after a political gathering in a park. And, and that's why that's what I said to, um, to Tucker. It was like a little bit being in China, a premier of a province uh, that uh, didn't want any opposition and uh, they did everything for me for not being able to do my rally because I had a big rally uh, uh, that I had planned the Saturday after at two o'clock in Winnipeg, and uh, I wasn't able to do it. Well, that comparison to China is important, Maxime, because you are not just a, a speaker or a protester, which I, I would still say means you're entitled to constitutional freedoms, but you are an opposition politician. You're campaigning. We know that in Canada there could be an election basically at, at any point, as is the nature of minority parliaments. And you have now been prosecuted, are being prosecuted, for trying to campaign for votes in an election. And the idea of arresting political opposition is something that people do associate with Belarus or China or Russia, but this is happening in Canada. Yes, absolutely. So it was not about the COVID anymore, Andrew. It was a, a political repression, uh, a premier in a province that did a press conference before uh, me uh, arrived, before I arrived in Manitoba the day before, the Thursday. And in that press conference, he said that I was not welcome. And if I'm coming to Manitoba, I will have to empty my wallet. So, you know, coming from a premier of a province, uh, so we know that it was political. It was not about COVID. And uh, Mr. Pallister, the premier of Manitoba, uh, didn't want any opposition. And uh, you cannot question or debate these ineffective and unscientific lockdowns in Manitoba. So that's why I said it's like being in China. 
And we've seen in Canada, whether it was the Black Lives Matter protests or other solidarity rallies that have taken place for any number of left-wing causes, a lot of these things that were not subject to police enforcement and in some cases were specifically encouraged by the same people that are saying you can't gather together to protest against lockdowns. And there is this double standard in that you're only allowed to gather outdoors to protest if you're protesting in support of some left-wing cause, not if you're protesting against the government or against lockdowns. You're absolutely right. And that was the case also when I was arrested, because all of these people that were with me, the first gathering, I had 15 people, uh, part of the uh, writing association, and the second one, about five or six people in a park, and the discussion about the writing association, the selection of our candidates for the next general election. That was a political uh, meeting. And all these people didn't have any tickets, and I was the only one to have uh, to tickets and also to be arrested. So that was, uh, uh, that was, uh, that's why I said it was a political repression uh, and it was all targeted uh, against me uh, as a politician. And, and we know that the People's Party of Canada is the only political party at the federal level in Canada that is uh, strongly against uh, these uh, lockdowns. So they don't like, they don't like uh, what I'm seeing and they don't want to have any opposition. One point that I think is important, especially for those who aren't familiar with Canadian politics, because they would say, well, this is why you, you can't elect liberals and all of that. Brian Pallister is supposed to be a conservative. Jason Kenney in Alberta is supposed to be a conservative. Alberta has put behind bars at least three pastors, I think maybe even four. Ontario as well has locked the doors of churches. Ontario led by a conservative premier. In a lot of ways, it seems like the most heavy-handed provinces in Canada have been by leaders who present themselves as conservatives and who are supposed to stand up for freedom of religion and freedom of speech and freedom of association and all of these things. And I'm wondering why is that? Because you've had a lot of harsh words for the established conservative parties in recent years. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I said they're morally and intellectually corrupt, and that's why we created the People's Party of Canada. They are not conservative anymore. They're looking at the poll and survey, and, and they, they, they try to tell you what you want to hear. But that being said, also in Quebec, there's a kind of a conservative provincial government with Mr. Legault, and we have very strong lockdowns and curfew in Quebec. In Montreal, in Quebec, you were not able to go out outside your house after eight o'clock at night until five o'clock uh, uh, a.m. So uh, the last time we had that in Quebec was in the 1970s when the, we had the October crisis. But uh, there's no reason to, to have a stay-at-home order or to have a curfew. And all these uh, government, I think, they are listening to the est medical establishment and, uh, and they, they, they spend a lot of money to uh, to do some advertising on COVID-19, specifically in Quebec. Quebec spent more than $135 million last year only on the ad about COVID-19. So all that propaganda was very efficient for scaring the population. And, and, when, and so they, they, they did everything to be sure that uh, they'll do the maximum 
to, um, to protect the population. But at the same time, they were not allowing and they are not still in Manitoba any debates about their, their position. So it's a little bit sad that these conservative governments at the provincial level are the worst. I was in BC actually a month ago and everything is open over there and BC have at the provincial level NDP government. So I cannot explain why the conservative provincial governments are the worst uh, and they, they are violating our, our rights, our freedom of assembly, freedom of speech. Uh, and it's not supposed to be a conservative values, but uh, it's very disappointing. Very well said. And just before I let you go, Maxime, I played at the beginning of our discussion that clip of you getting arrested and as they're doing the pat down, which you're right, is a dehumanizing and demoralizing thing to treat you like a criminal. They ask if you have any weapons on you and you give the best answer to that imaginable, which is only my words. Yes. And when he asked me that question, I was surprised, you know, uh, I thought it was a joke. I'm a political leader. I was campaigning in that province. I didn't have any arms on me and anything. And he asked me that question. And any, anything that can hurt me also, he said. And my answer was uh, weapons, no. Uh, you know, only my words, only my philosophy, only what I believe in. And I will always, um, I will always defend and promote our freedoms. And that's the one of the principal, uh, fundamental principle of our political party, the People's Party of Canada. So that's why I said my words, because I'm a politician and I need to explain our platform. I need to speak to people about our vision for a smaller government in Ottawa, more freedom, less government. And, um, and that's why I said that. People's Party of Canada leader Maxime Bernier. Glad you got the handcuffs off of you and got out of jail. I know you've got to go back to Manitoba to fight this in court, but I do appreciate you coming on, Maxime. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Have a nice day. Just this morning, Apple Daily, the pro-democracy paper in Hong Kong, announced it would be closing permanently. The heavy-handed enforcement of the Beijing loyal police in Hong Kong has just become too much for the paper to contend with after having numerous of its people charged, its assets frozen, and all the like. Now, I don't consider myself a Hong Kong expert by any stretch, but I know that for years earlier in my life, I used to look to Hong Kong as being the beacon of hope in that part of the world. No longer is that the case. But also, things like this are also no longer confined to that part of the world. One lesson of the last 15 months is to never take democracy and never take freedom for granted, no matter where you are. That does it for me. We will see you next time. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. reserved.